You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey y'all, it's Bridget here. Welcome to a spirited episode where we dive into the world of libations with none other than the iconic Simon Ford, the founder behind Ford's Gin. Join us as we uncap the fascinating story of this beverage luminary from the genesis of his passion to the global impact of his gin. Get ready for a journey through the juniper-infused landscapes of mixology, entrepreneurship, and the unmistakable legacy forged by the one and only Simon Ford. So sit back, relax, grab yourself your favorite Forge Gin cocktail, and enjoy this very special episode. Simon, I am so excited to have you on Served Up today. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Bridget. It's so nice to be here. So it nice is, to talk to you as well. It's wonderful. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit about your, your background? Oh, gosh. Yeah, 100% fully been in this industry since the beginning of time. No, since day one, um, you know, starting in a wine shop of all places. That's actually my first passion and probably still one of my biggest passions is wine. And, and I only think a small amount of people know that about me. But I, I sort of started doing 20 hours a week in a wine shop, which ended up me being a manager of a fine wine shop in London, where I studied through the WSET. All the way back in the day. In fact, I've been doing this so long that I was one of the pilot people on the WSCT Spirits when they first did it with Mark Ridgewell, because um, I'd gone through all of the wine um, exams at the time. Um, but I got noticed by Seagram's, the old uh, Seagram's, the big company that no longer exists that owned all of the big brands at the time, um, and and joined a team called Ideal Brands. This is so cool, by the way, Bridget. Ideal Brands had been founded by Oliver Painton, who had opened all of London's, or not all of London's, but some of London's most you know, notable uh, early cocktail bars where people like Dick Bradsell were working. And he started an import company that went into a marketing company. And that, that, that was called Ideal Brands. They had things like Absolute Vodka and Shivers Regal and things like that at the time. And you know, Captain, you name it. They, they, they. All those brands ended up in other companies, but, um, but he, he was um, a part of the cool part of that. And uh, I got to go and get my first marketing job. So I kind of left wine and found spirits that way. And of course, I fell in love with one of those spirits, one that you know quite well. Uh, we traveled to the distillery together, and I sort of fell in love with the whole category of gin. And that's sort of the beginning of my background. Of course, peppered in there. Because I met bartenders along the way in that job with Seagrams, uh, I asked a few of those bartenders to teach me, and that's how I found my way into bartending. So I did that second, not first. Most people do brand work uh, after they've done bartending, but I actually did um, brand work and met bartenders 
And I was like, these, these people are really, really cool. I kind of vibe with this. I'm going to go and do that for a minute. Yeah, that's where the bartending came in. I didn't know that about you. I've known you for a very long time. And I didn't know that. I, I thought you started off bartending first. So that's interesting. So where where were you when you started? Where were you located? I was living in the, a very small town of Bath when I first started working in wine shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would um, get me to move eventually to London. Uh, and that's where I sort of... Actually, one of my wine shops was opposite the Savoy Hotel. Really? Um, and the and the bartenders of the Savoy at the time, I had no idea about cocktails, but the bartender uh, at the, this moment and the bartenders at the Savoy would pop over, notably Peter Dorelli, and they would have all these strange requests for me. They were like, can you get this Japanese uh, sake for us? Or can you get this uh, Japanese whiskey because we have some guests coming over from Japan? Or can you get some Pisco? We have some guests coming over from Peru. And, and, and these were things that back then that were not so easy to find, you know, we were very lucky today because we can find all of these types of categories around. But back then I was like, okay, what is that? And, and, and so each time they came with a request, I would learn. And then one day to say thank you for all of the sort of uh, bits and pieces that I'd found for them over the years, they invited me into the Savoy. I was always too scared to go in. I had long hair and was wearing combat trousers. I mean, obviously Bridget, you know me well enough to know I'm a rock girl. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) And so one day um, uh, they sneaked me in the back door and made me all these cocktails and I was changed forever. I was like, wow, these drinks are intricate, they're beautiful, they're balanced. You know, obviously, you know, I was looking at it from a wine perspective and back then I was a big single malts uh, fan as well. And, and, and it opened my eyes to what cocktail culture could be. So um, Peter Dorelli was sort of uh, laid a little foundation for me that day that I still remember to this day. So, yeah, I was in London, but then I got the opportunity to go down to this coastal town called Brighton, which was a buzz at the time. It's sort of famous for a quadrophenia and, you know, various different sort of very British cultural moments. Uh, And notably their hometown heroes, Fatboy Slims, that had a big dance music scene. And I went and opened a wine shop there. And... uh, and above the wine shop was this licensed premises that no one was taking that was essentially a shell of a bar. And after my time at Seagram's, I went and inquired about that space. And we opened up a cocktail bar called Coba, me and a few friends. And it started winning awards. And, uh, and, and that's where I really learned to bartend. Can you date yourself a little bit? You know, what year was it when you really started off in the industry uh, on the wine side? Let's go oh. Then I, 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 it's the, it's the nineties, you know, you know, know, we have Nirvana, we have Pearl Jam, you know, it's, it's the nineties. That's as much as I'm willing to give up. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're right. Can you, can you paint a picture, Simon, of what the industry looked like when you were behind the bar? Because it is much different now. So I, I got from the wine shops to the bartending around Mm -hmm. 2000. Right. So right on that, that's kind of like a, a sweet spot for things starting to happen. So London was a really interesting place to be back then because Dick Bradsall and a few of his sort of, uh, I guess, disciples were opening bars and Oliver Painton was opening bars. Uh, and they were really trying to bring this cocktail culture to the forefront. And it actually coincided with very um, the, the hard to get into nightlife, nightlife in nightclubs. These weren't the speakeasies at this point. These were very fun bars, upbeat, and they were making great drinks. And that's obviously the period that the espresso martini comes out of. 
And in fact, one of one of the bars I went to uh, at the time no longer no longer open, but Damien Hurst opened a bar called the Pharmacy. Dick Bradsell was the bartender there, and I remember having it, they called it the pharmaceutical stimulant, but it was his version of the uh, espresso. In fact, the espresso martini was originally called a vodka espresso. It became the pharmaceutical stimulant when he um, was bartending at that place. And then, um, you know, but this is the period when the porn star martini comes out, you know, the French martini. It was very, I mean, I I know you know this period, but it was, was, these drinks were fun. They were refreshing. They were easy to drink. You know, we eased our way into cocktail culture before we started reapplying uh, bitter ingredients and and stronger drinks. You know, these were sort of fun and easy to sip drinks, but that the scene was a lot of fun. In the meantime, and I get my first trip to the US in 2002, and, you know, that little bar, Milk and Honey, was making making a splash across the water. We all wanted to see what it was about. Um, you know, it was uh, it was amazing. And so all of a sudden we see the crushed ice and the sort of speakeasy style. And I think that even back then, you started to see New York, at least, and London start to sort of steal each other's kind of styles and apply them to their own styles. And it sort of emerges that they get both very different types of cocktails. But at the same time, it was brilliant. It was very exciting because it was a small group of people doing this, you know, that were really passionate. There was no money in it. It was all passion driven. Yeah. It, and, and it was such a tangible thing as well, right? Because it was such it was a time like you said such a small amount of people and you could yeah. go to their bars and they would be there there wasn't um a, col- a cocktail mixologies whatever you want to call it style bar in every single corner it was a handful yeah. of people and you could yeah. actually go in and shake their hand and get to know them and they would want to sit with you and tell you their story and share their passion and I think that that was the beauty of the beginning of our, what we call like the second golden age of the cocktail. But it was real people that you could go and find and sit and chat. It was infectious. I mean, really? it really, mm-hmm. and you know, I obviously moved to um, becoming a brand ambassador in the gin category. And most places I would walk into back in those days, no one drinks gin, no one drinks gin. That's all I would hear from them. But then I would walk into a bar, someone like Julie Reiner's bar, or I would meet someone like you and 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 Tony. And oh, you want to talk about gin? We want to talk about gin. And that's how I really got um, involved in the U.S. Uh, bar culture because there was this small group of people that were doing uh, doing what Dick Bradsell and and Nick Strangeway and that crew were doing over in England, which you were a part of over here in the U.S. and not many people wanted to talk to me, but there was a small group of people that were passionately trying to push forward the drinks industry. And they were like, you want to talk gin? We want to talk gin. And so those and you and and, and everyone became my sort of first friends. And, and the common passion was cocktails and a love of good spirits and good quality. But we were definitely a small group of people back then that cared about those things, you know, and it's just grown and grown and grown. I feel very proud when I wander the globe these days and see how incredible the cocktail industry is and how many people just in some ways take it for granted in a beautiful way that um, people want to drink these drinks because at one point trying to convince a beer drinker to spend twice as much on something that came in a very dainty glass was actually a very difficult thing for us to all do. (laughs) 
It sure was. I know I had a conversation with David Wondrich once and we were talking about, you know, how we came up in the cocktail world, right? We all have kind of that common thread, I feel. And he goes, you know, we never had the cocktail books. We didn't have the Googles. We didn't have even the mentors really at first at that time. We we should write a book called The Crap of the Cocktail. And I said, yes, we should. <laughs> Instead of crap. I, I think that was very cheeky. <laughs> And Bridget, I did a I did a seminar at Roma Bar Show recently with Julie Reiner, and we called it 35 Years of Cocktail Evolution. We sort of, like, it, we, just for comedic effect, we started with the uh, espresso martini, vodka espresso, and ended with it. You know, like we sort of bookended because that drink seems to be on fire again now. Um, but we sort of looked at the bars that had opened, the, the people that had pioneered certain things throughout, you know, each of the years. And, and, and it was quite funny to look at because there were, trends that came and went, uh, you know, and things that sort of some stayed, you know, I, I remember a time when we were all putting our straws in drinks and tasting them mm-hmm. and, and pulling that face that, yes, this tastes amazing before we would hand the drink, you know, and, um, and then, and we'd have piles of straws that, you know, in front of us. And now we're all more environmentally conscious and also more confident that our drinks taste good. That right. we that 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 went you know i never sort of remember when someone said no you should do the dry shake you know with with egg white you know that was a new new thing at the time you know wow a dry shake you know and and something like the dry shake evolved into now people are using rotavaps and sous vide machines and crazy scientists uh you know came but they all had sort of moments where they sort of came and bought this new outlook on how cocktails uh could evolve and be and now we live in a world where it's just, it's a choice. How do you want your cocktail to be? Which spirits do you want to use? What techniques do you want to apply? People even design their own glassware now, you know, and some of that is 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 magical. And some of it's like, wow, what am I drinking out of here? You know, it's it's but it's a it's a um, it's a it's beautiful that it blossomed into this, you know, it is. It's amazing. And how lucky are we to sit back and, and be part of it, but also cheer our friends on and and be able to see how it continues to grow. You know, we're still here and it's just, it is a beautiful thing. And I want to take it back just a little bit because you did mention brand ambassador. And when I look back on my career, I, I think you were the first brand ambassador, at least the very first one that I had ever met. Can we talk about how did that job came come to you? What did that mean to you? And how did it really, it changed the face of beverage as far as career opportunities go. Yeah, I, I, I know that I, I, I know that I wasn't quite the first uh, brand ambassador, but I think I might be one of the first that really applied brand experience, cocktail knowledge, education that went beyond just talking about your own brand, you know, and, and, and sort of that, creation of communities. And I think that's why I get so credited with it because I took that approach. And I think that why I had that approach was one, I'd worked behind a bar at this point. Um, two, I'd worked in marketing at this point. Three, I had international connections. And and I, I, I do think that the number one reason why I think I might have done so well is I was so passionate about it. You know, I mean, you mentioned Dave Wondridge earlier. He was someone that I would sit with and say, Hey, wouldn't it be good if, and we would end up creating these historical cocktail tours and we did one in San Francisco, one in 
Paris, one in Boston, one in London, one, you know, three in New York, you know, one in Chicago. Right. Uh, and, 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 and so it was a lot, again, it comes back to that small group of people really passionate about what they're doing. And I was one of those uh, small groups of people. So I was able to connect dots. And the other part of that, you know, is obviously we get budgets as brand ambassadors and it was being able to apply that in ways that would benefit the industry. So it would benefit the industry, but also benefit the brand, of course, because everyone will associate that good work with the, with said brand. But it, you know, we, I was always looking at things that would push our industry forward. I, I've talked about this before, but not for a long time. But one of my proudest moments is the first time I bought a group of uh, bartenders from the USA to London and had a connection. This is sort of before the Facebooks and you know, and Facebook probably existed, but I don't know if we were utilizing it like that. You know, th- this is when Robert Hess had Drink Drink Boy, and everyone was having their um, conversations through that forum. You know, those were the, the the early chat groups that we had. But I bought all of these bartenders across to the um, the UK, and just seeing the exchange of excitement and the exchange of ideas and the relationships build and. And everyone went to Milk and Honey London on that trip. And, you know, and eventually people would go back to New York from that group and hang out with their friends and share ideas. Punches were being made in London at the time that made its way back over to the US. And and so for me, a brand ambassador role um, sort of emerged around 2002, I would say. I'd done it before in the UK. We were planning on coming out to the US and then 9-11 happened. And so while I kind of, you know, the dates on the books is I've been doing this work for longer, 2002 is when it really kicks off for me. That's when I really started spending a lot of time in both London or say London, but both the UK, the USA, Australia, popping over to Spain because that was a big gin market and various other countries around the world and started connecting the dots and connecting people and sharing ideas. If I saw something great in Spain, I would tell a bartender that I'd seen it in Chicago and it might inspire them. And I, and so those were, those were the best years of my life for sure. You know, just meeting and seeing this industry grow, but I will give credit to a guy called uh, Nick Blacknell, who was just one day said, said it was, I remember it while we were at one of the London bar shows. He said, do you want to go for a cocktail? We went to a whiskey bar called Trafalgar. And he said, would you like to sell this brand Plymouth gin all over the world? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I was doing a bit of bartending, a bit of ambassador work. I was doing a bit of uh, brand work, you know, uh, doing a bit of work for the gin and vodka association, which no longer exists. But um, now I was going to get a proper job going around the world with my favorite spirit. Yeah. And you did. You went mm. around the world and, and back and then you left your mark in different ways as well through like Tales of the Cocktail with your bartender's breakfast. Oh, now I remember when the bartender's breakfast used to serve breakfast, like <laughs> <laughs> a little buffet with your eggs and stuff, and then it just grew and grew and and into something um, now, which you, which we will talk about your brand. But can you talk about because it's such an iconic moment, I believe, in the history of our industry. Just that that really fun party that you would throw. How did that come to be? Why did you do it? And tell us what it looked like. So ending. I, I go to my very first Tales of the Cocktail and it was tiny. I, I, if it was 100 people there, I'd be surprised. But it was small. Maybe 200, I think, was the attendance that year. 
And I remember that the Museum of American Cocktail was being built. Ted Hain was down there, Phil Green, Dale, you know, they, they were all sort of down there building this. And I, I'd known some of them. I knew Dale, but I helped build the museum. I'm like putting cabinets together with Ted Hain and putting all these amazing cocktail artifacts in there. And they were making these, these drinks and there were cameras out and there was a, a few meals there and a few seminars going around. And I just went, you know what this needs? This needs a party. You know, fast forward to obviously sitting in one of my uh, you know, favorite bars with uh, one of my favorite bartenders, Audrey Saunders, and she comes up with the idea. You know, when bartenders have breakfast, it's after a shift. <laughs> we should do um, a big party at Tales of the Cocktail called the Bartender's Breakfast. Uh, you know, we put the word out, sent, you know, we had Peter Dorelli as Salvatore behind the bar at the same time as Dale DeGroff and Tony Abagan, and right, they're all there together. You know, we um, and we we set this this um, this party up, and we start with a, a second line, and we buried a cocktail. I never forget it. I we had a vote. Dave Wandridge, you know, looked at the cocktails that were voted on, and deemed that we should bury the apple teeny. So I remember that we buried the apple teeny that year, and we gave it a funeral, and we did the second line down the street. But we're setting up a party at this restaurant, but the restaurant wasn't anticipating. The amount of people, nor were we, to be honest. I think we were set up for 200 people and we had suddenly in the streets with 600 people, all like-minded bartender types. And this this poor restaurant was like, oh, I have like, they just were like, oh my gosh, this mob is turning up. They're going to destroy my restaurant. But of course, we convinced them that no, everyone here is part of the industry. We will respect your um, restaurant. But at the in the meantime, I'm like, we don't have enough ice. We don't have enough um, liquor. We don't have enough cocktails. I, I'll never forget this. Every guest did their bit to make that party happen. There were people going, do you need help making drinks? Next thing you know, you got still Steve Olson and Andy Seymour and his crew, like taking over a shift behind that bar. And of course, it was such, uh, there was such a buzz that night. And that party was so uh, talked about that we came back next year. And that year we came back with milk, the Milk and Honey team and we started putting bars in place instead. And of course, we prepared for 600 people that year. No, 1,200 turned up. It was, it, and, and that would keep going on every year. We were like, okay, we need to prepare for 1,200 people. Oh, 2,000 people have showed up. You know, thankfully, it, um, Tales of the Cocktail has sort of equalized a little bit. We know how many people to expect now at most uh, events of Tales, but back then we were never prepared. Some of, some of the venues, you know, love us for what we did, and some will never have us back. <laughs> that place would never have you back. I, I actually bartended at that one. I know you don't recall, but it was Tobin Ellis and I had a bar oh, together. Right. And Tobin Ellis, for those of you who don't know, was um, at that time a very famous like flair bartender, you know, world renowned. And he and I were really good buddies. And he had um, a couple handkerchiefs, you know, in his pocket. And we were sweating our asses off. And he tied it around my head. <laughs> Bridget, I actually do remember. Like, this. He's I, like, and from then on, he's called me Danielson from Karate Kid. <laughs> and I broke two ribs at that party, by the way. I broke two <laughs> ribs from working so freaking hard. <laughs> it was, it was so much fun. But it was the most fun I'd ever had. And I bartended for such a long time, guys. And that was the most fun I'd ever had with my friends. Like, we just did it. But I just was curious if you recall that. And if you remember just that the moment, because it, when you opened the doors, it was a holy 
fuck moment is what it was. I, 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 I hold on to the memory of it. And I actually, I'm a little bit of a hoarder when it comes to certain things. And I have the photographs and the, and the, the menus that would play, you know, and the, and, and, and some of the paraphernalia that we, we put up, which celebrated all of the bartenders that were there. I still have all of this stuff, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a moment that, you know, when my memory starts to fade, I hope to sort of pull this stuff out of a bag and go, oh, I remember that moment. But no, I remember it and cherish it so well that, that the, the first, the first couple that we did were two of my personal favorites too and, and favorite moments because I could feel a change and I could feel an energy in the air, you know? Mm-hmm. Everybody was pulling together, I think, for one of the first times really as a community, you mm-hmm. know, across states, because it was quite siloed in the very beginning. You know, you had New York in their kind of bubble, right? Because everybody's building their communities at the time. It wasn't built yet, folks. It wasn't built yet like it is today. And then you have your bubble in London. Chicago definitely had their bubble. And then in San Francisco had their bubble. You know, it wasn't like we were all together. So it was these events where we were all in the same room that helped to really build that larger sense of community because we could get to know one another and work side by side. It was an opportunity to work, you know, with our brothers and our sisters. And it was such a cool thing. Now it's so darn easy, right? You go on Instagram and say, hey. You know, or whatever. We exactly. Have- Handwritten notes, hoping that someone who works behind the bar will read an email, you know, text messages that take a long time to text. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just such a different time. Well, let's switch gears for a moment because you really made your mark, you know, with Plymouth Gin. Mm-hmm. And then um, then you took a little pause and announced a very big project of yours, a very personal project. And I would love for you to talk about Fortune. How did that come to be? Why did it really come to be? Why is it important to you? And, you know, tell us about the flavor profile as well and how you love to enjoy it. Fortune is a very interesting moment for me because it doesn't start out as something that is my idea to do. It's I it's there's this bartender that, you know, most people listening, I hope know. His name's Sasha Petrosky. He's no longer with us. He opened Milk and Honey. It's one of those seminal bars that really influenced not just how we serve drinks, not just how hospitality works, but how bars look and feel and how we use ice. To this very day, you, I walk into so many bars and I see his mark. And um you know, whether those bars know it or not, you know, just that, that, that his influence permeates throughout the industry. And he told me because he's like, the reason that I know gin and the reason I love gin as a category and the reason my team love gin is because of you and you should do your gin. At this point, you know, I, I'd, um, you know, done some work with our good friend, Alan Katz at New York distilling, you know, on, um, Perry's tot and, um, Dorothy Parker, and he'd started his distillery, and I'd been, you know, distilling with him on the weekends, and you know, developing recipes, which was huge fun. Getting to hang out with one of our best friends and 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 make gin. I'd helped a few other friends and consulted on gins, and he's like, "Why are you not doing this for yourself?" And I had this very narrow-minded opinion back then that I said, "I don't think we need more gins. I think we have all the good gins that we need." And 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 Sasha was like, "You don't get it, Simon. You know, like." Your knowledge of gin and all of the things that you've acquired throughout your your you know your career, you could really apply that to creating an amazing gin. And he said, by the way, you know, I've always looked for something a little, you know, 
you know, you know, something that has a lot of versatility in cocktails. And there's not one gin that I think has that. Um, he goes, my favorite gin in a martini is this gin. My favorite in a gin and tonic is this gin. And I was like, actually, you're right. So we kind of set out on a mission to make a jack of all trades gin, a kind of master of none, something that took um, the things that worked in a gin and tonic, the things that worked in a martini from other gins, and sort of put them all into one bottle and see if we can make a versatile gin for cocktails which was, again, just a conceptualized idea. But together, over martinis and oysters, uh, uh, a bar in New York City, we, we kind of like conceptualized what we thought a cocktail gin would look like. But that was really just the beginning of it. you know. So, so Sasha inspired me to go on that journey. From there, I would have to find um, someone to partner with who had a gin distillery. That gentleman would be Charles Maxwell. He's an 11th generation gin distiller. And he agreed to make a gin with me. But of course, I gave him my ideas. And he said, some of these are really amazing, Simon. Some of these, I have no idea where they came from. You know, you must have been, <laughs> you must have been somewhere strange at this, in this moment to think that this would work in gin. But either way, together, um, Charles and I refined some of these ideas. And then we started making gins. And it didn't finish there. We then tested them in cocktails and took them to our friends to test in cocktails and got lots of feedback and information. We just kept making new gins. And when we finally got a good direction, and then we started fine tuning that gin. And it took about two and a half years to create just the recipe for Fords. But I think that part of the reason for that is I was very nervous because I genuinely loved a lot of gins that were already out on the market. And I just knew I had to make something that at least was as good as uh, as those. And so I, I there was a lot of diligence. And so in 2012, we made the very first batch of Ford's gin, the 29th of February, a leap year. And then I had to figure out the rest of this industry that I thought I knew. I thought I understood distribution. Nope, harder than I thought. Price posting, registering, you know, I thought I knew about things like trademarks. Nope, had to figure all of that out, you know. And uh, and so it took, I think it took until September before I was able to sell a bottle, um, September 2012. But here, here we are. Um, more than 10 years later. And one of the brands that's been created from our industry of bartenders is still out in the market. And I'm really proud of it. And of course, there are a few hallmark things that we do that you can tell a bartender created it. You know, the bottle's ergonomic. It's got measurements on the side. The way we sort of speak, we, you know, there's all of the nerdy stuff that you could ever want on our website. You know, if you, if you want to know where our juniper comes from or how much we use, we tell you, you know, like we don't like keep secrets. There's a lot of transparency because it's sort of we know that bartenders are nerds too. And hopefully it inspires other bartenders who might want to diversify their career path to do brands in the um in the future. So yeah, very proud of that little project. And that's the one that's paying the uh, rent at the moment. <laughs> it's keeping your lights on, huh? <laughs> You're very humble, Mr. Simon, about your your Ford's gin, because you know, you also do such fun activities around your gin. So um, just like you, and I think one of the reasons we have a, a bit of a kinship is uh, we love music yes. a lot. <laughs> and it, it's my heartbeat. It's my spirituality. It's where I go when it's my soft place to land. And I think it, it's the same for you if I could you know, say that, right? And so when you came out with a vinyl, you know, music to drink, martinis too, I, my mind was like, just when you think you couldn't be any cooler or do something <laughs> groundbreaking, you come out with a record and it's so 
good. I have two record players in my house, one in my basement and one in my sitting room upstairs. And that is on rotation. I play it all the time. And that's where I work is upstairs in my sitting room. And I love it. It's so chill. It's so great. Can you talk about that project and how it came to be? Yes. I mean, obviously it comes from that mutual love that we both have, Bridget, of, uh, of, um, of music, right? And really where it started is we did a little, um, we, we have a friend, his name's Dan the Automator, and uh, he is an epic producer. You know, he, he was part of the hip-hop duo uh, Deltron 3030 with Del the Funky Homo Sapien. He's done, he's been in acts like Lovage, you know, with people like Mike Patton from Faith No More. And, and he had put together a record with DJ Prince Paul, who was in Grave Diggers, who was in Stetsasonic, who was uh, also um, the producer of De La Soul's first three records, including Three Feet High and Rising. So, the, so Danny Automator was in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an act with him called Handsome Boy Modeling School, but he produced everybody, gorillas, you name it, right? The, Danny Automator is sort of legendary. And we were having a discussion about the creative process. And we took this journey to five cities where we sat in a room with a bartender to talk about the creative process of making drinks. I was there to talk about the creative process of creating Ford's gin. We had a chef at every single one that would talk about the creative process of creating dishes in a restaurant. And we had Dan that would talk about the creative process of creating music. And we would look at synergies and we would share these conversations in a room full of like, you know, 50, 60 uh, bartender friends in each of the cities. And Everywhere we went, the martini was constantly being consumed while we listened to music and we would just have these late night chats. And we had decided that the martini is more than just a drink. It's a personal drink. It's a lifestyle. Much like if I say pina colada to you right now, you go to the beach in your head or the pool. The martini, you go, oh, I'm putting on my uh, dress or I'm wearing this jacket. I am, I am going to be in a room that's going to be of a certain style and I'm going to listen to music. And so we sort of, you know, or I might order some caviar. This is something unique about what a martini means to each people. And we started exploring that. And we thought to ourselves, let's, let's explore the, the lifestyle of the martini. We did not know we were going to start with music, but of course it made complete sense that Dan was part of these conversations. Now, obviously Dan has been a part of many acts and many groups. But um, when you look at Handsome Boy Modeling School, they made a seminal hip hop record or a few actually uh, in the early 2000s that have guest artists that go as diverse as, you know, Cat Power and, um, and Jack Johnson to the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, De La Soul. They're, it just they just created this 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 mix of music together. But they created um, alter egos for this record called uh, Nathaniel Merriweather and Chess Rockwell, and they would put on smoking jackets and fake mustaches and swell martinis. And so they were living this martini lifestyle. And so somehow, and I still don't know how, we managed to convince them to put together a soundtrack for us for martinis. And that meant going into the studio, making the martinis to get them inspired, and then having them come together and, and make this uh, mini EP of seven tracks that there's music to drink martinis to. We didn't want to stop there. We went to seven of our favorite bartenders and asked them for martini recipes to pair with the music. And then we sort of packaged it up as something to inspire people to 
say, hey, this is our martini recipes and our music to drink martinis to for you. What is your music to drink martinis to? What is your martini? What does this personal uh, drink mean to you? And so we're having fun with what I consider to be the probably the uh, most iconic of gin cocktails and that love of music that you and I both share. Yeah, and so many, right? I mean, yeah, it's just such a unique concept. And it's really hard, I think, anymore in the beverage industry to be original. Mm. And honestly, when we, when we, um, you know, this has been me for the last 20 years, but whenever we've done something with whatever brand I may have been working at, and I know that you and I have worked on brands together over the years and done stuff together. And, and, and I've worked on a lot of different brands throughout my career, which has been really, really great. You're always trying to think about how can we engage our customers, our consumers in a fun, interactive, educational way. And what can we do that will hopefully bring that emotional attachment to the brand beyond just this is a liquid, right? You know, like what is, if your brand was a lifestyle, what would it be? And I really want Forged In to be seen as obviously a bartender brand that is of great quality, but I also want it to be seen as a fun brand, you know, don't want it to be too stuffy. You know, I don't want it to feel like this old English brand where it's, you know, pipe smokers and you know, uh, it, you know, and 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 gathering dust in a cabinet somewhere. I want it to be seen as a, a brand to have fun with. And so, I also think of our brand as an extension of the hospitality industry. You know, mm-hmm. like whenever we throw an event, and you know this, even from that very first event that we talked about at Tales of the Cocktail, right. that is our opportunity as a brand to say thank you to the people that have served us drinks that have, uh, have hosted us in their bars and restaurants. Um, it's, it's our way of saying, okay, you've done this for us all year. Come to our event. Let us make you a drink. Let us put on uh, the creating atmosphere for you. Let us host you. Let us give you hospitality. And as uh, everyone listening knows, music plays such a huge role in creating the atmosphere of a bar, a restaurant, a party, you name it. And so, you know, while... I, you know, we often focus on ourselves as drinks makers and someone that's serving. Actually, we're so much more than that in this bar industry. We're people that are curating atmospheres. We're creating a curating vibes. You know, we're curating moments. The drink is a part of that. The music's a part of that. The decor's a part of that. The service is a part of that. So just um, Forge Gin engaging music as a platform for the moment is just our way of saying that we believe this is part of the hospitality industry. Yeah, you're doing a damn good job of it. I mean, really bringing that whole tapestry of the industry and pulling it together. It's so much fun. You know, I mean, our last Tales of the Cocktail Party, Bridget, we had 35 bartenders from around the world. Uh, We had the Black Keys spinning the music. You know, uh, we, we had like beautiful food set up, you know, we we um, did it in a lovely surroundings of a of a hotel down in New Orleans and had eighteen hundred of our closest friends come and enjoy cocktails with some of the best bartenders in the world. And at all of our events, we make the cocktail the star and the bartender the star. You know, yeah. the fact that we had the Black Keys spinning records was our what we call surprise and delight. You know, come mm-hmm. and make a big meal. You know, big noise about the Black Keys. We just knew that if you came to a forged in event, you know, you're going to get something a little bit special. And it was, and it was, and it, you also had um, an experiential. I remember going into one of the rooms and I sat there for like an hour 
and was served co- one cocktail after another that was absolutely magical. And I Jose, Jose Andreas. Group. Yes, that was it. Sorry, Jose yeah. Andreas. And so that was bananas. And 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 you know only you, Bridget, come to my parties with like Hollywood stars. <laughs> very sweet to let Sam Hewen and me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, please let Sam in. Let's get him in, please. But no, it was it was just amazing. And and I, but when I walked through and saw so many friends, so many friends, whether they're behind the bars, maybe restaurant owners, or just attendees, you know, having a good time, I did reflect back to your first party, which was also bananas in a different way, right? <laughs> and that, damn, my friend Simon, come such a long way. I'm incredibly proud of you because you do the work. And you I will tell you. work, you know, to make it happen. And you have great relationships with so many people because you're genuine. And it's and- just, a, it's been a pleasure to be your friend and to watch your journey. Thank it's you. really, really a very special, I, special I, thing. I will, I will say this, you know, I mean, Forged Gin goes way beyond me now. You know, like there's so many people that are a part of creating mm-hmm. this culture. You know, I, I, I hope that, you know, I, I have been an inspiration to the uh, the people that work on it. But I think of uh, the team that helped bring that event together, you know, whether it's Tim Cooper and, you know, uh, you know, Nadini and, you know, Anthony and, you know, Joe Brooke, Martin, all these, all these people that work, um, work on the brand, you know, you know, Alex and, and so on. They, they, they all play a part in this, you know, they, they, they also know the bartenders and they yeah. also live the values that we, that we have. And they, they also, um, know cocktails and they also invite their people. And so, you know, like it sort of, it's grown so much bigger than me. And I, I actually believe that one day, I don't get me wrong, I'm going to go to every party and tales I possibly can, but one day I think that party could exist without me, um, you know, quite easily. In fact, there'll be a point when everyone's going, Forge Gin, I love that brand, and then going, Simon who? And actually, that will be a great moment. <laughs> Absolutely. What's next for you, Simon? I, no, this is all I want to be doing right now. This is, this is, this, um, I'm having so much fun. Because you know what happened, uh, you know, is now we're going international with the brand. You know, we were, we were very confined. We had, we were in four or five countries before, mm-hmm. of course, because that's where we make the gin. The USA, because this is where cocktail culture just thrives. You know, we'd been, we were in Australia and doing well and Singapore. You know, cities that have great cocktail culture seem to be where Forged Gin is. And, and as cocktail culture grows, we get more and more requests from around the world. And so, we're in about 23 countries as of this year, which, you know, again, if we compare ourselves to other brands, that's quite small. You know, they're in 170 plus most brands I know, but that's been the work I've been doing. So I traveled more this year than I have ever done in my career. And it was going and launching it in new places. I was in Sao Paulo in Brazil and I was in Istanbul, Turkey and, uh, you know, Rome and, you know, just various other places bringing the uh, bringing forged into those markets for the first time. And so it it's really exciting. You know, COVID, which feels like a long time ago, isn't that far. It's and it destroyed the forged gin business just as much as it destroyed uh, uh, many bars and or nearly destroyed many bars too. You know, we were, I thought the brand might not survive. You know, we were 
like this because most of where we are represented is in cocktail bars around the world. So we've been having a bounce back like everybody else. And, um, but that bounce back this year felt so exciting. And I feel like next year I may be even more exciting. So I'm loving what I'm doing right now, Bridget. I, it's, it's giving me so much opportunities. Well, it's giving me an opportunity to make a record, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's like crazy things like that. So it's so much fun. And I, continue to get the opportunity and I'm going to call it a privilege, but to go out and see what bartenders are doing in the world continually. You know, I think if there's one thing I know maybe even better than gin is cocktail bars these days, because I really do get to see what's happening in the world, you know, and it's really exciting for me to see. I'm going to bring it right back to the beginning of our conversation, Bridget, but it's really not exciting to see what you know, was happening and bubbling in the early, late nineties, early two thousands and how that has developed into what it is today. And like I was mentioning, I just got back from Lima and I was in some incredible cocktail bars there that I didn't know existed. And then I look at the 50 best list and there's all these bars in Lima, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, cocktail culture is everywhere. It is. It is everywhere. I want to thank you, Simon, for spending some time with me today. I know you're a busy guy and I know you're just coming off of literally traveling the world. So thanks for spending some time and for sharing your story. I know our listeners are going to be incredibly inspired as I am. I always am inspired by you. And I I want to just wish you just some great health and a lot of peace, brother. Uh, Bridget, thanks for having me on. And I miss you. I need to come and visit soon. So I will. Yeah. Well, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!